this is to me at least a big moment in time where those realtors who have been coasting and i say that with all due respect but there's a big exposure coming up now for those who have been taking orders um and this is our opportunity to really prove our worth and educate our clients on what's actually going on building a successful real estate career requires you to adapt pivot and constantly master new skills we're Katie and Daniel Steinfeld. We've built our own innovative brokerage. And in this podcast, we've assembled actionable tips and strategies that you can implement to take your business to its maximum potential. It's time to level up. Level up. All right. This is... Level up once again. We are live in our Level Up group, and today is a special episode. We are thrilled to have Daniel Foch and John Pasalis with us, who are two of, uh, at least to us, and hopefully to most of you, the most well-known folks when it comes to breaking down the things that are happening in real estate, uh, in analytics, and making sense of that tangled web we've weaved in real estate in the GTA, Ontario, and beyond. Thank you for joining us today to both of you and uh, ready for a pretty, pretty wild conversation. <laughs> yeah, glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so maybe we'll get started if you guys want to give a bit brief introduction um, of yourselves. Sure. Um, I guess I can start. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker uh, north of Toronto. Somehow got uh, grouped in with the, the lovely Toronto folk um, and, and sort of joined mm-hmm. the, uh, the Twitter community there for the center of the universe. Um, I, I kind of got recognized a little bit, I would say, early on in COVID when I started documenting what was happening uh, with maps of sort of the urban exodus um, and, and kind of just really, I think trying to be more in touch with the millennial market, I'm a millennial myself, um, and just figuring out sort of what the micro trends are there, similar to what John's doing, just obviously not not even remotely as advanced or experienced, but uh, but kind of following his lead on just trying to shed some light on what happens in the market. Awesome. All right. Uh, John Pasalis, uh, I own a brokerage in Toronto called Relosophy. We're based in Leslieville, uh, seven agents, been in the business for, I don't know, 15 plus years or so. Uh, you know, and like Daniel, take a very uh, kind of data focused approach to kind of understanding the trends in the market. I mean, more specifically, kind of the, the micro trends. I mean, everyone can look at Treb stats and see how sales are up or sales are down in, in the entire GTA. Uh, but there are different things impacting different house types and different, you know, neighborhoods and municipalities. Everything's kind of doing something slightly different. Uh, and I think it's important for people in our industry to kind of understand those differences because understanding them impacts sort of your buyers and your sellers' decisions, especially in a volatile market like today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's, that's the key element that we're getting to today is that everyone has such a habit of looking backwards and taking those stat reports that everybody likes to talk about in the media, but making sense of them and using the stuff we know beyond just that backward looking really macro information is what's most important to us being able to do our jobs in an effective way. So hopefully uh, over the course of the next little bit, we're going to be able to dig into some of the tools that you both use. Um, some of the analytics that you've made and, and thoughts you've have about uh, where we are and where we're going. 
Um, we do have a bunch of people watching right now. So to everybody who's watching, if you do have questions, feel free to put them in the chat and we will make sure to have them uh, asked here as well. Um, but uh, I guess to build on that, the, the most important thing I think to a lot of the people watching is how do I make sense of all this? I mean, things are always weird. People love to ask the question of how's the market, right? And that's kind of what as realtors is that first conversation breaker that we get with the rest of the world. Um, and beyond just saying it's crazy, <laughs> right? Or, or whatever it is that uh, we, we sort of fall back on. I think we all need to be equipped with a greater understanding of where we are. And that begins with how you approach I guess the analytics that you do and what sorts of things that you would want to uh, advise the people out there that do this for a living to make them a little bit more aware and effective in the job they do as realtors. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people are asking when you, when you hear the media going over to realtors, they're like, why are you asking realtors these questions? Like we're not really especially qualified on paper to be answering a lot of questions like this. But the reality is that, you know, the market ends up being sort of a, an aggregate of all of these anecdotes that, that come from people like us. And so people come to seek those anecdotes before they show up in the data. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of leading indicators that you can look for, um, you know, and, and I would say Twitter, the, a lot of the people on Twitter successfully called the top in, in the real estate market um, pretty much to the day, I would say. Um, and that, that was a function of, of seeing those anecdotes and combining it with, with analytical response that came from data. And there's a lot of good people on Twitter who are looking at the right things, right? So, you know, th this market was especially unique because the, the, the drop in price is happening as a result of credit contraction, not because like we didn't see the typical leading indicators. We didn't see um, days on market go up before, um, before prices started to come down in a lot of markets, right? We didn't see, and we're, we're still not even in, in a lot of markets in a, in a buyer's market yet, right? Um, and so you kind of have to read between the lines with a lot of the other things that are happening. And to me, the big, I think the biggest leading indicator was the failure rate of bidding wars, right? So bidding wars were starting to fail. Uh, and as soon as they kind of crossed that 50% line, um, you knew that, that your days on market was going to double or, or for those types of properties, right? Or your days on market was going to increase, but it hadn't yet showed up in the data. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, to me, it's just knowing what to look for. And John's probably got, I think, maybe a better handle on, on the actual indicators, but that was, those were the, the big ones for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree. I mean, the, the, the first signs actually don't really show up in, in the numbers. Like if you look, I mean, I wrote, I, for my March report, which looked at February data, you know, I actually kind of started talking about how we started seeing early signs of the slowdown at the end of February, but there's nothing in the data that would suggest that, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you looked at the data, everything was still hot, everything was still crazy. Um, but like Daniel said, I mean, we started seeing on the ground a decline in the number of showings, a decline in the number of offers, some failed offer nights, you know, and I, I think it's very hard when you do what you do, because in those early days, you know, you can't really read too much into it. Like, we don't know how it's going to unfold. Like, we don't know. We didn't know prices would come off as quickly as they have. I mean, I mean, if someone predicted that all the power to them and good for them, but yeah. I didn't see, like, I didn't see prices falling as rapidly as they have. Right. Um, and th those things are impossible to predict. The slowdowns are impossible to predict. You just look at the data, um, but prices started declining. I mean, sellers who were, who were kind of locked into purchase agreements who needed to sell, 
you know, started selling for a little bit less than what they should have. And then that sort of sets a new floor. And then one or two weeks later, more people sell for less than that. And, you know, I think it's just, again, like Daniel said, if you're looking at sort of these on the ground trends, I mean, the interesting part is, you know, I, I've had like agents just trolling me on Twitter saying, what are you talking, what are you talking about a slowdown? It's still competitive. It's still a seller's market. It's still one and a half months of inventory. I'm like, it's not an opinion. Like the prices have stopped and I don't know what you're talking about. Like, like we, we've passed sort of the opinion part into like the actual facts. Right. And, exactly. and it's fascinating because like agent and these are like active agents are like, no, no, it's still a seller's market. You need five months of inventory for the buyer's market. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking like. Yes, in theory, but prices are down like 10 to 15% in some areas. Yeah. So you make sense of it then, you know, exactly. it's just fascinating. It really is. And I, I follow you both on Twitter and the comments you get sometimes just, you know, arguing against your points. It's just unbelievable. But to what Daniel spoke about before, um, I know, you know, media reaches out to you guys all the time. And I know a, a few of the other realtors that are on Twitter and, it's interesting because, you know, the stats we get from Trev and I see a lot of agents and obviously the, in, in a, in a normal market, looking back at the stats a month before is still relatively relevant, but in this past market, it's just, it, it has no relevance whatsoever. And so us seeing on the ground that they're, you know, on our own listings, that there's no showings or we're, you know, going to a bidding war and there's only one offer showing up, like, those are the minor signs. And, and I know, John, you said, you know, it's not necessarily an indicator of a trend, but definitely um, I know in the early parts of when you guys were kind of predicting this stuff and people were saying, well, that's not a trend yet. Like we're not seeing that in the numbers, but like that was a pure, like it was so obvious um, to people that are in the industry that that is where we were going. Um, and I wonder if like what your thoughts are on when realtors say it's not a crash, it's not a downturn. Like, do you just think it's that they're trying to protect their business, that they're trying to just keep, you know, clients going and, and moving in the same direction that they have been in the last few months? I think they're just, I think they just don't know and can't see it. And quite frankly, like, you know, again, if you're looking at March data, even it doesn't look that bad. Right. It's okay. Yeah. It's soften a little bit, but you know what, when, when, when the market's slowing, you kind of, to really understand what's going on, you kind of want to look at weekly data, which is too high frequency in a normal period. But when you look yeah, at weekly yeah. data, you see sales from the beginning of March to the end of March, like this, like a downward trend, which is not normal, right? Yeah. And you actually see prices trending down from the beginning of March to the end of March, which is also not normal, right? Like prices tends to be relatively flat as we've been trading. Sales typically tend to go up. So I think a lot of these agents are just looking at the aggregate data. They're not getting it. They may not do a lot of deals, you know, and, and I like in defense of some agents, if you're working primarily downtown Toronto, like you, you, the whole time you're probably thinking, what the heck are these people talking about? Like every other home still getting multiple offers in areas like Leslieville or in the core, you know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, part of it could indeed be the markets that people work in, but I mean, I think I think in most cases, agents are just like not paying attention to what's going on and just mm -hmm. aren't asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think to what both of you touched on as well, like the strategies and the pricing that's coming forward, like you mentioned bidding wars. I think this this has been in a lot of ways, hopefully a great eye opener for all of those who have argued that bidding wars are the causality towards higher prices. 
<laughs> because we, we could do a bidding war right now and still sell a house. It would yeah. just be sold at a lower price, right? And so yeah. I think strategically, I'm curious what your thoughts are on whether or not this may, I guess, uh, by accident, have an impact on the strategies that agents choose to take now that you know, maybe the bidding war isn't that golden ticket that everybody thought it was to get you a big price. Um, we are seeing pricing and pricing strategy all over the place now. Like a lot of agents are scrambling to go low, go at what they want, whatever it is. Um, do you think that this might have some impact on the approaches that realtors start to take? Or is it going to take a lot more time and a lot more data before anybody actually changes the approach? Yeah, I, I would hope that it'll amount to a change. It, it, it's especially interesting because like, I actually don't know if there's evidence. It, it, I'd love to see it, but I don't actually know if there's evidence that apples to apples, a bidding war does produce a better price. I think it's actually just wasteful, right? Like it, it requires significant, significantly more amount of showings to get the, the, vo the offer volume that it would take to increase the price in, into a bidding war situation. Um, you're wasting a lot of people's time who think they're qualified at that price and aren't, right? Um, and and the seller's time as well, right? Because they have to get out of the house, you know, 20 more times or let's say twice, two to three times as many um, times. And the, the reality is, um, you know, if you had to just price it appropriately, you'd only have qualified buyers going out to the house and, and people who are willing to pay that price. Now we're in the situation where the market's trying to figure out what something is worth. And this is where you have this this issue where there's a, this, this gap in expectations, right? I always said like when, when I thought prices were gonna start coming down, I said bidding wars leave this huge gap where the only thing that, that we need to do to create downward price discovery in the market is the bid needs to start decreasing. The, the asking price doesn't need to decrease because it's already too low, right? So, the, and realtors didn't realize that they were, there was this huge gap between that and all, and, and we always saw a change to, to bring these prices down was the, the sale to list price ratio started decreasing. That was the only indicator that, sh that told me that we were going to start seeing it. And then you started to see the bidding wars failing more because people weren't getting the price that they wanted because the, the bid was coming down and the asking price was actually like moving down. People were just underpricing further. The challenge, like, I actually don't know if I would give most agents credit in saying, oh, this is the best strategy. I think it's the easiest strategy. You don't have to price the property properly. Yeah. You got to know what you think it's worth, maybe, so that you can drop the price two to $300,000 below that, right? To me, it's lazy and you're letting the market price for you, right? Yeah. And, and so... I would say, like, I hope that this is the end of it. I think that, you know, the, the federal government is, is claiming that they have some sort of way to get rid of the blind bid. I'm interested to see how that happens. I don't expect that it will um, solve anything or create more affordability. Look at Australia. They've had an open bid for years. But I think it'll help to eliminate some of those one-off cases, those outliers where a buyer gets screwed by overpaying you know, four or $500,000 when there's only one other bid in the market and it's, you know, and it's at asking price, right? Right. That's my thoughts on that. No, it's really interesting. And it's funny, we did a, um, an interview with the Department um, of, what was it, Fair Trade in, in New South Wales. At the, at the customer service wing the customer. Of, of the government. Yeah. <laughs> and they were shocked. Like we, we started the chat about open bidding, but it, 
it became more about the whole underpricing and they were shocked at how we price homes and they've got specific rules around like the limitations as to how low you can price like you can't even price low it's like within what a home is valued at based on your own research and which is what we should be doing as agents and they just couldn't believe how crazy like how much freedom we have and i really think it's not about the blind bid it's about the pricing games that we're playing and confusing customers with because it's just it's wild and it just frustrates everybody i think at the end of the day yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go for it. I, I was going to say, I mean, it, it is quite bad. And you would think this slowdown would uh, lead agents to change their strategies a bit, but I'm finding it's not. I mean, there's still like 50% of homes selling for over asking, right? Mm -hmm. And again, over asking is like a misleading indicator because, like to Daniel's point, yeah. they're probably still not getting what they wanted or selling less than what they would have hoped for. But I'd say the, the the worst of the lot probably has got to, it's actually hilarious. I mean, one of our agents was talking about this in her sales meeting like two weeks ago. Um, she went to like look at three homes with her clients. All of them were priced for something like $8.99 or something like that. Hadn't sit in the market for three or four weeks. Had offer nights that expired. When she yes. talked to the listing agents, none of them wanted $8.99. They wanted way more than asking. Yeah. When she basically asked them, you know, what are you expecting? They wouldn't say anything. They said, well, just bring us an <laughs> offer. What do you think it's worth? Right. And like to Daniel's point, like this yeah. is just completely lazy. And it's it like, is. yeah, it's lazy and they're hurting their clients because um, no buyer wants to waste their time. You know what I mean? Like if it's a really nice home, it's price lows or an offer night. Okay. Maybe you go in and you, and you put in your offer, but when you're sitting in the market for three weeks below what you want, below market value, you don't know if that person's expectations are irrational or not, right? And a lot of buyers just don't want to bother if the person has irrational expectations. And certainly their behavior of listing low for four weeks also makes it look like they're irrational, right? Yeah. So that's got to be kind of one of the worst strategies, I'd say, right now. Yeah, it's actually especially interesting if you examine consumer psychology, like in um, I think it's in uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, Kahneman basically stated that, the, you know, the accessibility of something like if something's priced lower, actually, you're less likely to be compelled to to offer on it because you could buy it. And even if you can't, like you don't know, but it's, it's priced in such a way that the consumer psychology would dictate that, you know, if you're actually searching for something that might be closer to the top of your budget, you're actually probably willing to pay a higher amount for that, even if they were, you know, apples to apples. Yeah. Oh, I, I think the psychology is a big part of also, hopefully, where we can start to use the information that we've got available to us to help manage the psychology and the expectations of our clients. And we've been, for the last couple of years, it's been all about playing catch up with our buyers, right? And trying to convince them that the place is going to go for more and educating them about how the price isn't the price and all of that. Where now, I don't know if it's a complete tipping point, but the time has come where now we need to educate our sellers a whole lot more as to why their expectations are off base potentially because they saw what their neighbor sold for in February or, you know, that they've come to you and we talk a lot and have been talking more about how this is to me at least a big moment in time where those realtors who have been coasting, and I say that with all due respect, but there's a big exposure coming up now for those who have been taking orders. Um, and this is our opportunity to really prove our worth and educate our clients on 
what's actually going on. So how would you now, if, if there was data or if there was a certain uh, a piece of information to lead our seller clients to, to help them understand where things are going, what would you say to them? Because a lot of this is bringing their expectations back to earth so that this gap cannot just be closed by the buyers reaching them, but now by them coming back to the buyers. Yeah, I think you, you can see sale to list price ratio is still trending down in most markets actively. I could be wrong here, but the last time I checked the data, we dropped from like 118% to 108%. Mm-hmm. And the list price is relatively static. These are my markets. So like, you know, York region, I don't know if Toronto is the same. It's probably the opposite, to be honest with you. But, but in York region and most of the GTA, I, I think you're starting to see um, proper pricing execute better on a sale. Right. And so, and again, like you, you're getting the, you're getting the, the to the point where if you're underpricing, you are not there, there's not enough showing volume in the market. And the other thing is you can check broker bay. This is a tool that all agents have, like you don't mm-hmm. even have to pay for it. Um, but showing volume tapering off as well. So if you're underpricing and you're not getting the hundred showings that you need, which there just isn't that many showings in the market right now, mm-hmm. uh, cause a lot of buyers are waiting to see what ha- happens. Uh, the reality is you might as well just not waste your own time or, or the, the market's time and price it appropriately. That would be my philosophy. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that it's, I mean, I think a lot of agents are going to start to realize, you know, in slower markets, it's hard working with sellers. You know, I think we're so used to just slapping up for sales sign, bringing 20 offers in. Um, you know, and, and when you have that offer night that fails, uh, you know, those are difficult conversations when sellers have certain expectations. Right. I mean, I think that, I think the key thing with, as a, as a listing agent is, you know, you you can't be looking obviously at comparables from three months ago or two months ago. I mean, you got to look at what is sold in the past week or two. Um, and you need to really, really understand the, the hyper local trends in your market. Like it doesn't matter that the house on the street was underpriced last week and it sold for 200 over asking. Cause if you call the listing agent up and they said they only had six showings and one offer, they were lucky they got that one offer. Well, that's a completely different picture than if you just look at the sale price over asking and assume, Oh my God, it's so amazing. We're going to list low and we're also going to sell for more than asking. Right. Um, and I think, you know, I, I find most agents are pretty cooperative in this business, you know, because they're in the same boat. When you call around, ask for feedback, how many showings you get and how many offers you get, what was your experience like? Mo- like, I would say 90% are answering those phone calls. Yeah. Uh, I would say 95% don't make those phone calls, right? Um, but the ones that do understand what's going on in the market before they list. And, you know, I've been getting more of those lately. Um, with the market slowing, you don't get them a lot, obviously, when everything's getting 20 offers, sure. nobody cares. Yeah. But in, but in this kind of market, obviously, it's, it's a lot more important. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because it's amazing. You sometimes people assume that agents aren't going to open up about that type of information. But when you do call, most of the time, as you said, they are willing to share the details on showings and all that. So in addition to calling um, like agents in your local market, as well as what Daniel said, Broker Bay is a really great resource. What are the other places you look to to figure out your own statistics and analytics? It. I used to use raw data from Treb. Um, so I, I used to go and do it manually or I had an yeah. intern who could like pull stuff. Cause there's, you can get a little bit more granular if you actually like copy and paste those charts, especially if you want to do like neighborhood specific, pull your 200 records and actually copy that little table. So I had like a bunch of like pre-populated infographics that I would 
copy and paste those into an Excel. It was like super cumbersome, Mm -hmm. but you know what? It it helped me a lot, especially early in my career because I was, I was young and nobody, nobody really trusted what I had to say. Right. And so data helped me with that because I could tell the story better than, than a lot of other agents. And a lot, I think a lot of millennials miss that, that piece. Um, so, you know, fast forward to, to, I guess, COVID, one of the projects that I worked on was with a couple of guys who they, they ran this website called the Habistat and I gave them access to the data. I think, um, John uses the same thing, but Treb basically has an API where you can pull all this old data. And as long as you aggregate it and refine it, um, that, you know, you can present it to the public. Um, I guess you can present the, um, the sold specifically to the public as well if they're signed up to a vow or whatever it is so um i you know we use that and they um they have a program basically now like they've built it's i think uses microsoft power bi but it's basically a bunch of charts that you can like like john said drill down to like weekly even daily data if you want to see price i mean daily is a bit bouncy but this is where i've got all of these trends because now i can like they have every sold comp that's available within trev's uh or trev's api or, or vow system um and and put it into charts and so i use that and they actually i told them i was coming on this and they said that they're willing to offer sort of any other agent um if, if you guys are listening if you're all interested um 50 off for a year so if you guys want if anybody wants to give it a shot um I can give you guys a link for that as well. Yeah, that would be great. You can share that um, within the group and then, yeah, in the show notes. That's, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty powerful platform for sure. Um, yeah. I almost get lost in it, but I just like screenshot charts from that now and post them whenever I kind of find an interesting conclusion. Right. Mm-hmm. And John, how about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, we typically go, we use sort of the, the raw Treb uh, yeah. data feed, the VAV data feed to... I mean, to, to help, you know, us sort of analyze sort of the underlying trends. I mean, it's the raw source. We have a tech team and, and I do a lot of research. Um, and it's, I mean, I, I'd say it's difficult because, you know, a lot of when you're working with a lot of data, it's really just trying to find the important trends or the interesting yeah. trends and, you know, in specific markets, because there's just so much stuff to look at. It's like analysis paralysis almost, yeah. you know what I mean? You can get lost um, which is, yeah, you do, which is I like, I write way, you know, I'd probably write way more queries than I actually post, but, you know, if, like for every hundred things I look at, um, you know, I might post one or two charts, you know, because a lot of it's like interesting for me, but not like a great story or nothing, you know, impactful. So, um, but it takes time. Yeah. But I think that's, that, that's interesting too, is I think anybody with an argument can support it if they look deep enough into whatever data they want to find to support their argument. Oh right? uh, yeah. I can give you, I can give you tons of data showing a bullish story for Toronto real estate <laughs> exactly. right now. Honestly, I really wanted to. This is the hottest market I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we've, we've got a question and uh, it's from the States actually. Um, so I guess we, it's just an overall real estate. It's a pricing question. Um, where we're being asked, can you talk about pricing correctly? Is the answer to use comps from the last few weeks? Um, and she's, she's messaging from San Diego saying they don't see sales prices until they close and agents generally won't share that info until closing. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Wow. So, so I guess that does create more of a, I mean, when, when you don't have an open base of agents sharing with you and you can't see it, um, I assume you still have a sense of the temperature of what's going on. Um, but what would be your advice when it comes to pricing appropriately? And I'm not sure how much they underprice or not in San Diego. I'm not sure what the approach is there. Yeah. 
I use it often, uh, especially when the market's changing like this. So I use what we call competitive based pricing. So I, rather than picking your best comparable, your your comp, because we don't know like if, if the comp is even realistic, right? We'll pick your closest competitor. And as long as you're priced below your closest competitor, the likelihood of, of somebody offering on your property or choosing to show your property rather than the closest competitor is usually pretty good. I think we're still in a market where a prop, a, 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 and I think the states, probably San Diego would be at least one of the markets that would behave similarly. If something's worth more than its price, the market's going to pay, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be deliberate under pricing, but typically, you know, the market is pretty fair at pricing properties, unless you're absolutely horrible at marketing stuff, which really, I mean, if you put it on MLS, I think you've done your job, right? At least in, 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 in the current uh, Canadian real estate uh, economy. So I would say, Looking at competitors, if you don't have the data, it might actually be a better place to start. And then also familiarizing yourself with all of the stuff that you are competing with. Show every property that a buyer might be looking at when they're looking at yours, et cetera, right? And, and then just price it according to those. Because uh, you can price off of competition without knowing comparable data, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say it's it's interesting that they don't have sale prices until the properties close. I mean, but th those are still data points, right? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're comparable sales. It doesn't matter if they happened two months ago. That's kind of the latest data that I'd lean on. But also, yes, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think, Daniel, I think you're kind of talking about also looking at active listings, right? And right. I think, yeah, and I, and I do think that's... Yeah. For a sec. I, I always think it's me that freezes them. I think that's also quite relevant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's also quite, uh, oh, my internet connection's unstable. So, yeah, I, I think using sort of active listings is also quite key. I mean, mm -hmm. I tend to, in those markets, you know, I, I like trying to price at the high end of market value. Like, if you think about market value, it's sort of like a distribution and, you know, you can be sort of at the high end or the low end or kind of right in the middle. I mean, if you're taking offers anytime, you want to be at the high end and see what the market says. And if it ends up saying you're too high, then you reduce, but you don't want to start too low. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay, so next week we have an interest rate increase. What are your thoughts on that? Where are we going? What are you expecting? I, my, my expectation would be probably... 25 to 50 bips from from the Bank of Canada. I think it seems to be that what the market's pricing in, but bond yields have sort of normalized a little bit. I'm probably not the best macro guy, but it just seems I, I, I'm just sort of regurgitating information that I get from people smarter than me. Um, and I think that, you know, I actually would say that I think that the, the GTA market maybe overreacted to the first rate hikes. I mean, that technically you, you see, um, I guess it's a, uh, the, the reduction in buying power so far that's happened as a result, if you're on a variable, so in a worst case scenario, it's like 5%, right? Um, and the market's down 20 to 30%. So for, for certain people who are very sensitive to rate hikes, um, it's actually not a bad market to be buying in, right? If, you know, if, if your rate's going to go up a lot and that's going to cost you 50 to 100K on capital costs and the price is already down 50 to 100K, then you might actually be getting the best deal for you, maybe not the best deal that the market's willing to offer, but the best deal for you that, that, that's available, right? Which I find really interesting. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I think that it's gonna take a long time for us to really realize this, and I think this is just starting, but I think that actually Toronto kind of dropped off faster than 
and, and John said it early on, right? Like, I think there was an overreaction. I think that the market is pretty sophisticated and it's actually forward looking into these rate hikes. And I don't, I think that prices are going to come down more over time. Um, but I, I don't know. I think the biggest drop in the fastest, like the fastest velocity that we're going to see is probably already behind us. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I tend to, I, I think I agree with Daniel. I mean, I think the, the, the I don't think we're going to see this big of a decline going forward this quickly. And because a lot of this is just people who have been stuck, who've bought, who need to sell. I think as we move towards the summer, they're going to be far. I mean, some of our clients are starting to list first and then buy because of that. Right. So when you're listing your property first, you're less anxious, you're less panicked, you can be more patient. So we'll probably start to see that. But I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the market responds. Like, obviously, we're, we're probably thinking 50 basis points from the bank uh, June. And then if they do another 50 by the fall, I mean, the thing that's going to be interesting is, you know, and the reason prices are are likely softening and probably going to soften maybe even a little bit more is not so much like panic or, or so much sellers in the future who are distressed, but can buyers afford these prices paying 4% on their mortgage, right? I mean, these prices were hit when people were paying one and a half percent or 2%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you more than double interest rates, it's all of a sudden a lot harder to afford, you know, one or 1.2 million on a home when you're paying four or four and a half percent versus one and a half or 2%. So I think we might still see some pressure in the market. Um, and, and what's probably going to happen is it's just going to be probably a slower market, you know, more listings, listings will probably increase. I don't know if the, the, I agree with Daniel, I don't know if like the trend down in prices will be as aggressive, but we still might see a bit of that in the fall market as the market adjusts to these higher rates. Yeah. Well, I, I know that, uh, Daniel, you've talked about, you know, I, I think it was you put up for every quarter, for quarter point that uh, that the interest rates go up, that could have, you know, a six figure impact on buying power, relatively speaking, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it, I guess it would be, I think it's 1% per quarter point if you're talking on the variable side. Okay. So, yeah, so it'd be smaller. Yeah, but, but still, like, I, I mean, the reality is I think that the, the price most people are, are watching price. I don't know why, but people are watching price, right? They're not thinking about, about the, the rate impact, but the reality is no matter what way you slice it, an increase in cost is an increase in cost, right? So you can either lose hundred grand in equity by buying in February, or you can pay hundred grand more in interest by buying in March or mm. April or May, right? right. So yeah. a lot of people aren't doing the math. And, and I don't know if it's, yeah. I don't really know if it's our job as realtors to, to do it for them, but there, somebody in the supply chain of buying a resale home needs to be helping their clients with this algebra, right? And, and I, I've been trying my best to do it, but I think that, you know, on the mortgage side, like just, it's just, it boils down to how asymmetrical the information is and how clouded the the, the, the story is for, for buyers in, in the Canadian housing market right now. Yeah. And yes, you're right. It wasn't, if it was a hundred grand for every quarter point, we'd be in, <laughs> after, yeah. after two points, we'd be screwed. <laughs> uh, but um, so, so how do you see this playing? I mean, right now what we're hearing a lot of, and we're seeing it, uh, you guys might as well with, you know, things, issues like appraisal, people who are afraid to close people who bought in the high and are now, terrified um whether or not prices themselves drop like drastically or not is there still is the onus on us as realtors to have deeper conversations with our buyers right now about those real risks going forward i mean it should be that kind of goes without saying but uh, do you see this being a a trend of a story in the months ahead as interest rates do rise that there's going to be more talk 
about that on the closing side for people who are even making buying decisions today for a close in, let's say, July or August? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, we, we've been having harder conversations with our clients since March. You know, when we saw the market <laughs> slowing down, you know, we, you know, and, and I think this is the hard thing when we're in this business. Um, you know, you have to educate your clients about what's happening. You can't be too pessimistic or alarmist either because you don't know how the market's going to unfold. But we started warning people that the market's slowing down and they may want to think about maybe selling first and then buying because this market was still strong-ish in early March and we thought might soften. Most didn't do that. You know, virtually everyone was like, it's too inconvenient, you know, and, and they're not as worried about the market. They're so used to the market being hot, you know, but some of them, were under a bit of pressure to sell when after they purchased in a much slower market. And fortunately, all of our clients who were in that situation successfully sold. Um, but I think it's, it is hard to have these conversations because on the one hand, you need to educate them. You can't be overly pessimistic, you know, and say, well, if you buy now and close in July, maybe price are going to fall 20%. You're not gonna be able to close. We don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think it is a tough conversation to have. I personally don't think we're going to see a steep decline kind of to Daniel's point over the next few months. I think we've seen the bulk of it. But yeah, you have to sort of unpack these risks for your buyer and your seller, right? Because, you know, this, on the flip side, if you have a seller client and someone's buying their home and now they need to sell their current property, I mean, the risk to your seller is what if they don't sell and they can't close, Right. Um, you know, so there's all sorts of risks that we have to unpack with our clients for sure in a slowing market. Um, and I think it does make it a little bit trickier for sure. Yeah. I think I would, I would just generally agree with everything that, that John said. Um, I, I think that, you know, maybe the only, the only difference that, that I'm really seeing up here is, is the choice whether or not to, to purchase or sell. And I've always advised people to, to try and do both things at the same time. That's a lot of work for a lot of agents, I guess. I don't know, apparently, because pe some people seem to want to have one and then the other. Yeah. And I've never really understood that, right? But but I, I think that that's where the, the big risk exposure started to happen. Yeah, sure, there are people who just entered the market and now they don't want to close in a negative equity position, but they should, because at least they get a house out of it. They're going to have to pay for that equity. Otherwise, the person chooses to, to sue them, right? Um, but I, I think that the, the big thing is, are we, are we advising people to buy first or sell first? Or should we just accept that maybe this market needs to slow down and we should be trying to do both of those things simultaneously? That's the safest way for people to transact real estate, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I wonder because, you know, I, I can understand maybe like a few weeks difference, like if you've sold and then, you, you know, or vice versa, but I can't understand how people, and maybe this isn't the case, but it seems as though people bought in February and now it's May and they're trying to sell. So I just don't understand what's happened there. And maybe it's a lack of, uh, of uh, you know, agents explaining what they should be doing. Yeah, I think it might be, a, I think it, there could be like a degree, it could come back to a lot of that, that, that maybe the laziness or, or, or simplicity's sake for an agent, right? Like, again, like, I don't want to, you know, it's, it's hard, like, I'm not going to call the broad market lazy, but a lot of people in our profession are, right? That's why, like, the public sentiment towards realtors is, is, is very negative, right? Yeah. Like, and, and so there's a couple of different reasons that people might do that, right? If you've got somebody, lock somebody into a purchase early as an example, or a sale early, like you got one end. 
they have to do the other end, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are like, we have to get this one out of the way, right? Um, but again, like the market can change so drastically to between one and the other, right? Um, and and if, if it's like, oh, you know, let's buy first and then we got to spend two months preparing your house for sale in May. Well, it's like maybe don't do the, all of that and trim off the 100K extra that you're expecting to make by painting and staging it and just mm -hmm. buy and sell in the same market because, yeah. you know, that 100K just got erased by 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 the invisible hand, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's kind of my my thoughts on it. I don't know, but I, I think maybe I'm a bit too results based and maybe not maybe not service based enough. But that's that's sort of my philosophy. Is like a lot of those frills, <laughs> a lot of those frills end up costing you in the long run, right? Or they are yeah. when the market is 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 doing what it's doing. Yeah, but I would argue. I mean, you, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say to your point, Daniel. I would argue that you are service based because you are providing that real knowledge to people, right. and that's what's most important at the end of the day. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, you have to be buying and selling in the same market. But at the end of the day, you're, you're getting into one contract before another, right? And most people, the first contract they enter into is the purchase agreement to, to buy a home. Um, and, you know, you and if you're doing that, you have to list instantly, right? Like half of being in this market is if you want to do the painting and the prepping and the floors and the whatever, you're doing that while you're looking for a home so that by the time you purchase, you're on the market within a week, right? Yeah. And it's funny, I was speaking with a mortgage broker, I don't know, like a month ago. Uh, and it was funny because, I mean, we speak frequently, he knows what's going on in the market. And he's like, I had a deal where, you know, the buyers bought in something like, you know, mid-March. And then the real estate agent said, yeah, but we're going to wait till, you know, around mid-May to list their current home. We want to list it in the spring. And the mortgage broker's like, I don't like contradicting the agent, but I'm like, are you sure that's a good idea? You know, yeah. and I think the agent just maybe didn't do a lot of sales and like you normally list in the spring. So let's just list it. It'll be nicer weather. You know, the flowers will be out. Oh, and the mortgage broker's like, I don't know about that, but you know, you have agents who just, uh, they're not oh, reading the market. You know what I mean? They do five deals. They're not in their office listening to the stories. So they just think it's normal. And, and again, I think these are the people who are probably hurting their clients. Yeah, the flowers will be out, but the sales will be down. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know how much a, a flower adds to the purchase price, but it better be a lot. Yeah. And you better play the exactly. That's your strategy. hundred yeah. percent. Oh, that's it. I, I, I love the uh, the Warren Buffett quote of "Only when the tide goes out, you discover who's been swimming naked." Yeah, and I think uh, I think I, I don't want to presume. I mean, we're all kind of saying, but not saying that there's a lot of people in this industry who need to smarten up. But the reality is, there's a lot of people in this industry, and and I think when you've got seventy thousand realtors, and a lot of them don't do this and keep an ear to the ground in real time, daily, weekly, monthly they need to have talks like this and they need to take the time to understand what's going on beyond just it's easier to sell when the sun's out <laughs> right because yeah. the, the sun doesn't care about monetary policy and demand and sentiment and all those other things and so um, really the theme of this discussion is yes we always talk about how there is no crystal ball and none of us know what's going to happen but you can equip yourself in a much better way than the guy next to you if you just take the time to ask some questions, talk to the people who know, listen to the people who know, pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, I mean, we all formulate our own opinions, right? Like none of us has the exact same 
understanding of or, or expectation of what's happening. But I think the vast majority are seeing the same thing and making the same conclusions from that. So um, it, it is, that's an interesting note because like I le- try and leave it in the hands of the, the client to form their own mar- you know, investment thesis, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not up to us to know what people's uh, best interests are. It's up to us to represent those best interests once we know what they are. And they, they mm-hmm. are going to communicate that, those to us we can help them arrive at what their best interests are by presenting them with information, right? So to me, it's like you, what big part of our job is gather as much information as you can so that people can make informed decisions, right? Let them establish an investment thesis based on that information and then go out and and fulfill those needs. So help them decide what their needs are and then fulfill those needs. It's not that complicated, but people try and convolute it because it's easy, right? It's easy to say, yeah, the market's going to go up. You better hurry your ass into, into uh, do a deal with me, right? Great time to buy and sell. But it's, it's not easy to, to properly represent your clients and to give a shit about what they have to, you know, or what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find in this market, a lot of the questions I'm getting now are basically like, should I buy now or should I wait? It's like people want, it's like they want me to time the market for them and to tell them when the bottom is for them yeah. to get in. But like, yeah. it's not never going to happen. Like, you know, if you buy now, you just have to be prepared that the you, you price are going to drop maybe another 10% in the time that you've owned it. But like, if you're going to own for 15 years, who really cares? Like, you're never going to time the bottom perfectly. And for those people who do, it's quite frankly, probably chance that they just happen to buy it. If not, no one can predict these things, right? The, I think the other piece goes back to doing that math, right? It's like, if the stress test stays, if the stress test does not go away and we see another... 50 to 100 bips on on prime from the bank of canada a lot of the buyers who are asking me whether or not they should wait they're not buying a house ever right because the reality is they're not going to be able to qualify even on a variable so you know there's there's real challenges with with waiting and, and outlining those like that's just that's just, that's fact like that's math that's algebra that you can present to a client and say look yeah prices are down this much if you wait until, and let's say on the current rate hiking schedule, if you wait until this long and, and co- collaborate with a mortgage broker, get a calculator made, say, if you wait and, and your rate goes up by uh, hundred bips, you're not buying a house unless they come down to $300,000 in the GTA, right? Cause you're, you're the, the buying power gets smashed. And that's the, that is the, the piece of the puzzle that nobody is really being attentive to. And maybe it's cause everybody's getting a cosigner or whatever it is, but like those the reality is the algebra as rates go up, the algebra, like the economics of buying a house change so drastically and nobody's paying attention to that. That's why prices are coming down. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. You mean it's not the bidding wars? I thought it was the bidding wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. Somebody commented that the, well, they have 250,000 agents in Southern California alone. So I guess, you know, they're kind of in a similar stand as, as what we are in Ontario. Wow. Well, even more, I guess, um, than what we are in Ontario. Although yeah, I guess Cal- like, uh, Southern California would have almost the population of Canada, right? That's uh, true. Yeah. Good point. But I, I think tr- per Metro, Treb has the most, I think it's, I think it's the highest per capita. Per capita, yeah, I think we are oh, yeah. the highest yeah. in North America. Yeah. Yeah. Some, someone on your street, multiple people on your block are realtors right now. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> where, wherever you are in the city. Um, as we wrap up, I'm curious, I, I would like to get your thoughts on like, how did we get to this point where we're the highest agents per capita? I, I listened to your um, Twitter spaces last week, Daniel. It was very yeah. good. Um, but Thanks. I know you guys touched on that as well. But I'm trying to understand like, what it is it, what is it about Toronto GTA Ontario that has gravitated all of these agents into um, this industry. 
I, I would say like <laughs> it's the only it's the only investment. Like I think there, you know, I was chatting with um with a couple of guys from the states. They were trying to to find um a way to short the the housing market. And and if you look at basically, uh, if you take the Canadian economy and you strip out like if you strip out financials um or like natural resources telco any of the other sort of oligopolies and then you, you know they, because of their fund size they needed a, um a share i guess that had a, over 100 million dollars in trade volume there was like nine companies or like 11 companies left right and like three of them were cannabis companies and so our, our economy has nothing really going for it other than than housing so that's a big i, I think that's a big piece of the puzzle right mm-hmm. the next thing is like the our investment economy doesn't really have a lot going for it like cannabis was not the get rich quick scheme that everybody hoped that it was right uh, I don't think that, you know, there's a lot of other, I mean, oil and gas in Canada, maybe, but like, so one is that that's like a, a big concentration of our wealth. I think the majority of Canadian wealth is concentrated into the primary residence, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've turned your, your economy into a housing Ponzi scheme. You have a lot of immigration. Immigrants want to buy these houses. They want to get in on the housing ladder. Yeah. Um, and then I think that it just becomes like this thing and it's like, everybody wants to do it. And, and it's an easy way. Everybody sees it as an easy way to have a part-time job, make an extra hundred K a year, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it, they're not wrong. And the, and the, and the, the barrier to entry is so low that like, why, why not do it? Right. It's 3,500 bucks. I think takes six months of your life, costs you maybe five grand a year max to hold your license. Like I get it. They've made it way too simple. I think to, to become an agent and the consequences are too low for misrepresent like, you know, like, and that's what we're seeing right now. Agents are not being sued when their client gets absolutely destroyed from buying too high in the past two months. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't know, like there's, it's this huge principle and agent problem. I don't think it'll ever, it's ever going to be regulated away, but, mm-hmm. but that's sort of like, from my perspective, I just think it's too low of a barrier to entry and too, like too low risk and, and super high reward. It's the perfect investment. Yeah. Yeah. So- I mean, I, I tend to agree with Daniel. I mean, I think, I think the investment side of real estate is one of the key things. Like I think a lot of these people who get into it to become agents, may not even necessarily transact a lot other than for themselves or for their family buying investment properties. Like the, the dynamics we see in Toronto where condo projects are selling out in two or three days and have lineups. Like this isn't normal. Like this is normal in the US in 2004 and five. You know, it's not normal now where you just, you know, launch a condo project and it sells out in, in a week, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think ca- Canadians and Torontonians in particular are very, very real estate obsessed. You know, I was, I was, did this chat with like uh, Bank of America a little while ago, and I was speaking with one of their analysts there who covers like banks in Canada. And he's like, you know, when following like real estate in Toronto on Twitter is really interesting because like a lot of the US markets are not like that. Like you, they just don't have that community of like, mortgage brokers, real estate brokers, like doing these real time things about what's going on on the ground, which is fascinating to me. It's like, it's not as common. It's like Torontonians are like just all over real estate, you know, and it's not just us who are writing about it. It's like, obviously people who are following what's going on. Right. Right. And I think there's just definitely this, this culture that it's like the safe and most lucrative investment that makes everyone wants to trade in it. And I think that's certainly a big factor. And, and obviously like the low barriers to entry, the way Daniel mentioned is, is massive. Yeah. 
So, so looking forward, do you agree? I mean, beyond uh, obviously the barrier to entry is a clear thing, but do you agree that this is the safest investment to hold around here right now? Like long term, is Probably this where people a need to be? Real estate license, because I mean, I, 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 <laughs> real I, estate license, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's been safe for the past several years. But look, I was wrong for, for I, I like I thought, I thought 2017 was you know, a pretty big whiplash, but I, th- I felt like there was yeah. actually more downside in the market. I guess we'll see whether or not I'm correct. Cause like, I, I have this philosophy that you, know, you, you can only be correct as a, as a, as a bear, if the price goes below what it was when you started being bearish. Right. So, um, and for me, that was even below 27 or before 2017. But I, I think that like, you know, housing will, will be a, a good investment because people always need a place to live. Rents are climbing. Uh, it's a decent hedge against inflation. Um, I, I think that if you, you know, no, no investor in their right mind was really looking at uh, February 2022 prices and salivating and saying this is an extremely safe and, and great investment, right? But as prices start to normalize and rents start to go up, uh, I think you're going to start to see good investors start re-entering the market, even if there is still downside, because the reality is it's starting to make sense again. The economics are really improving, right? Like you can actually cash flow a, a duplex in in most of suburban GTA again, um, and I and and those were those have always been good investments, right? I think the other thing is you know policy is only going towards more density in the suburbs, more density on main roads. So if you buy well with real upside, not you know not like the market only goes up upside, but if you buy something that has development potential, laneway, house potential, garden suite potential, duplex potential, whatever it is, um, you know, you've got some real intrinsic value. So mm-hmm. I, I would say, yeah, I think it's a safe investment. I just think that you have to buy damn well. And, and we're just getting into the market where you're able to do that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Did you Everything add? Daniel said. I mean, he's, he's right. I mean, I think this is the this is the, the, the thing I think that some people get, like I'm still bullish real estate long-term. I mean, I'll probably look at buying in the near future. It doesn't mean every price is reasonable and you should just jump in in February. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, would I be, what I'd be lining up to be buying pre-construction condos today, zero chance. I mean, even if I'm wrong on that bet, I don't care. To me, it's just too risky a bet because it's not like if I buy a resale condo and it dips 20 points, I don't care. But if I buy the pre-con condo and it just 20%, well, I got to come up with the cash to cover the difference in order to close on it. And I have zero interest in doing that, right? Yeah. So there are certain investments that, you know, I would make and others I wouldn't, even within the whole spectrum of real estate. So, yeah. There's almost an inverse correlation between the shinier the object, the less you want to touch it, <laughs> right? Like when you look at these pre-cons and the, the more somebody's marketing something as the hot thing to buy, it's almost like that's because we're not looking beyond the shininess of it. And yeah. a lot of the value falls behind that. We, the problem is like we have this get rich quickness. of yes. like It's like this is our retail investment, right? You see in the States, all the kids taking their stimmy checks and pumping it into meme stocks and whatever it is. Like, I mean, that's, that's Canada, right? Quantitative easing in, in, in like what, who it benefits here is the Canadian banks, right? They get bonds purchased from the bank of Canada and they have a bunch of capital they need to lend out and they need to get it out. And what's the easiest way to mainline money into the economy in Canada through the housing market, right? Everybody's looking to get rich quick here. And then it was like, Oh, Toronto's tapped out too much downside risk. Prices are too high, whatever. Okay. Let's go buy pre-cons in Calgary where we haven't even reviewed the contracts <laughs> and don't even know anything about the city. Right. So, I mean, this is the, like, it, I, if there's one thing that could possibly happen, it'd be a positive outcome for our economy being destroyed over the next two years. 
it's like Canadians will realize that you cannot get rich quick in housing and you shouldn't. And, and that was a bad idea to try. Right. Yeah. That's a very good point. Awesome. Well, thanks so much guys. If I would highly recommend following both John and Daniel on Twitter. Um, they always are posting a lot of great content and great analytics. Um, I learn a lot from you guys and Daniel does a Twitter space every Thursday at seven. Um, and every single, um, every single topic is really worthwhile. What are you talking about this week? Uh, today's like a mortgage roundtable. So basically we're just going to have a bunch of brokers, lenders, et cetera, just talking about what's going on in the mortgage space. I, I think it's going to be really interesting. There's already some rumblings about some people being a little bit more open than they were in February about mortgage fraud. So I'm interested to hear how that uh, takes shape. Yeah. Come join if you want. I'd, I'd love to have you on as a speaker. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, any, every single time I learn so much and we'll make sure to link to that uh, sorry, that, uh, Twitter space. And is it also, does it become a podcast or? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I can post it. Yeah. But I basically, um, I just save the recording and post it to my podcast platform. The podcast is called brick and mortar. Okay. Perfect. And John, is there anywhere else we can direct people to, uh, other than your Twitter, which is great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our, our, I write about the market on movesmartly.com. So I write a monthly report on Toronto's housing market there. Yeah. That's really great. The, the uh, report you did on like the 2016, 2017 housing bubble, uh, that was amazing. Um, I thought that was right. really, yeah, really, really interesting. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, make sure to reach out to these guys if you have any questions about the market. They have all of the answers. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Thanks. Level up, 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 level